dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in God's country crops far as I can see headlights on both ends of my day this country life is for me ride with us HPJ ride with us Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Midwest Ag Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Associate Editor Jennifer Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Associate Editor Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. So, folks, we are recording this on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. 75 years. I, I cannot imagine what those people, those young men they thought of 75 years ago today their their feelings it's hard to believe that it's been that long we want to pause a moment and just say thank you right Kayleen to those who who stormed the beach and saved the world yes you know when I was a kid growing up I grew up just down the road from Eisenhower's birthplace and we took trips to the Eisenhower Museum and we saw all of his World War II things and the exhibits and you know, you don't grow up in that kind of environment and you don't walk away without having some reverence for D-Day. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I really saw the magnitude and I understood the magnitude of what happened 75 years ago today. Yeah, I agree. Um, did you have anybody that served? Not that I'm aware of. The generations past my great-grandparents are just kind of fuzzy to me, so I need yeah. to do a little more research on that side. So... You know, I, our family were um, were either too old to serve or too young to serve in World War II. And by the time Korea came around, my dad had a, a farmer deferment because they, they needed farmers. Mm-hmm. And so um, between that and, and some eyesight problems, he didn't get to serve. Um, but I did have some distant relatives on mom's family that served. I and believe some of my husband's, their family, the Scott family, I think were... I don't know if they were necessarily in the World War, mm-hmm. but I know his his grandpa was in the Philippines. Maybe I need to catch up on that, too. Yeah. You know, it's something that falls by the wayside because, one, veterans often don't want to talk about it. Yes. And that's understandable. But if we don't pass these stories on to our next generation and we don't, you know, remember what happened, we're... We're doomed to repeat the yeah. the things that we have in our past. You know, I had some teachers that came home and, and got their educations with the GI Bill. And and like I said, you really cannot grow up just a stone's throw away <laughs> from the Eisenhower Museum and not have that be a, a big part of your world. So yeah. um, today over in France, there are some major ceremonies going on. And uh, we want to just say thank you. Thank you so very much. I'm, I'm guessing there's probably not a lot of 90-somethings that are listening to High Plains <laughs> Journal's HPJ talk. Um, but if you're a 20-something out there and you're listening to this, go ask your grandma and grandpa right now. Go ask your great-grandma and grandpa right now if you can, if they're still around. Ask them what happened in World War II and, and get those stories. Yes. Well, in other news, it looks like we're on track for a doozy of a problem in corn country. Uh, The USDA crop progress report this week showed corn and soybean planting progress at 58% complete, 
when it typically would be around 90% at this time. Yeah. It's, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mess. That's about 39 million acres of corn that's not planted. That's greater than 1993 when it flooded and also in 1995. Uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Iowa. The farmers sure have been hit hard in those areas. I was looking at maps, Kayleen, and the prevented planting acres... 39 million acres. That is 39 million football fields worth of corn yeah. that have not been planted. <laughs> to, to put it into perspective, yeah. 39 million football fields worth of corn have not been planted. And yellow dent number two corn is ubiquitous. We use it for everything. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that we trade overseas to other countries because we are basically the world's garden. Yes. <laughs> and so... Our farmers couldn't get in the fields because it is too wet for their equipment and it it's not an ideal condition to put plants in. And we're all coming up on they cannot plant after this date, this cutoff date for insurance. Yeah. Was it today or yesterday, the cutoff? Uh, yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah, and that insurance date um, varies according to regions, but yeah. yesterday was pretty much the cutoff date. And then soybeans, Kayleen, aren't any better. No. The U.S. is only at 29% completed plantings of soybeans when the five-year average at this time would be like 66% done. And that's 60 million, 60 million acres of soybeans that were supposed to be planted that are still in seed sacks in the shed. Mm-hmm. Say that three times fast. <laughs> seed sacks in the shed. I mean, we laugh at it, but that's 60 million football fields worth of soybeans and if corn is ubiquitous soybean is pretty much in every product that we have out there from plastics to fuel to animal feed we Mm -hmm. use it for everything and other countries use it for everything so this is this is incredible um like i said you know record flooding means farmers can't get in the fields those final planting dates have come and gone and that means for those of you out there that may not understand crop insurance, and trust me, this is a very, very simplified version because we are not crop insurance, and so go talk to your trusted professional. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but that means prevented planting payments from crop insurance policies. Now, that may be 50% of what, you already, what, what the crop would have brought at market. Mm-hmm. 50%. You've already outlaid 100% of your costs. And you're going to get insurance that'll pay for half of that. That still means you still owe yeah. half of the cost that you've already spent in seed and crop inputs. <laughs> and that's all sitting in the on pallets in your shed. If Hopefully. The sh- yeah, <laughs> if the shed did not flood. <laughs> the kickers, the corn prices are still in the tank. We have a second round of MFP payments. You, you did a story this week on that. Yeah. And those second round of MFP payments... They may be more than the prevented planting acres payments from crop insurance. They may be less. Yeah, it just depends on the county average, as mm-hmm. they said. And and the kicker on that is you got to plant something yes. in order to get the MFP payment. You can't get it if you don't put anything in the ground. I'm telling you, I don't know how farmers aren't rioting in the streets right now. <laughs> because this, they've got too much else to worry about. <laughs> I, you know what? This whole uncertainty about what's going on in farm country that's got to be just 
gut-wrenching for folks. It's gut-wrenching for me, and I don't have skin in the game like that. You don't have a million-dollar operating loan out at the bank? No. (laughs) Heavens to Betsy. I have a house payment. That's that's what I have. I have a house and a car payment. Trust me. I could not do what these fellas do. I I look at my friends that are farming actively, and I just go, how do you not buy stock in my Lanta? Yeah. Or the beer company. Or the beer company. (laughs) (sighs) You know, and, oh, even even more fun, we have ad hoc disaster stuff coming from Congress that may or may not help out. Yeah. And uh, we haven't even kind of dipped into, in this whole discussion, folks, we haven't even dipped into the ripple effects of this. So if we don't have, what, what, what do we look at again? If we don't have 39 million football fields worth of corn in the market, that means that, trans, that trickles down to the guys that are on the porch that are shipping out corn. Mm-hmm. That translates to the truckers. That translates to your local communities that rely on farmers to bring in cash and and, and the cattle feeders that are going to feed cows next year. The cattle feeders, yeah, corn local locally domestically, corn's going to probably rise in prices because mm-hmm. we the supply's lower, so the demand's going to still be there domestically, which means that could translate to higher prices at at the shelf. Yeah. I mean, this is two journalists with very limited <laughs> ag economic backgrounds here trying to simplify this. <laughs> And it's confusing as all get out. I can't yeah. imagine the the people that are in the middle of it. Um, so if you're a farmer, you're out there trying to make these decisions, good luck. Godspeed, man. Because <laughs> uh, this is just heartbreaking and frustrating on so many levels. Kayleen, when you when you did that story on MFP payments, um, you went out to USDA.gov, right? No, I listened in on a call that they had. And they, they had the secretaries explain stuff that they were mm-hmm. proposing. So, And did they have any finalized they, th- thoughts? They didn't have specific details yet. They've got to work stuff out still. And um, they're hoping the first payment will come out later in the summer. And they're hoping that stuff gets worked out okay so they don't have to make the second and third mm-hmm. payments. So hopefully everything gets squared around the way it's supposed to be. Trade agreements and, yeah, and that trade sort of thing. And, all that stuff. and we got to remind people again if you're not in agriculture and you're wondering, well, what's the fuss over payments? That's, you know, why should they be relying on payments from the government to make their bills? Okay, little, little ag finance, ag economy 101. Farmers pay to have crop inputs, they, they have to pay the bills first before they ever get seed, before they get. Um, equipment they they pay mm-hmm. they operate on what we call operating loans from banks from lenders from local guys those local guys go well if you you know everything goes according to plan you'll probably raise x amount of do- uh, x amount of corn you'll probably have x amount of cattle etc cetera, etc cetera. you should if everything turns out okay according to prices you should see X amount of dollars at the end of harvest. You can pay back the loan at harvest. Yeah. Mother Nature throws a wrench in it every year. And that means that these farmers have to pay their bills before they ever even get to pay themselves. Mm-hmm. So these payments that we're talking about, these are the difference in keeping equipment on the farm so that they can farm another year. These are the difference in making sure that kids have shoes to go to school in. 
that there's fuel in the in the gas tank so that they can go out and they can plant if they ever get able to get into the field with something <laughs> else. Um, this is why this is a dire situation. So if if you're a if you're a friend of agriculture, go talk to your representatives and say, hey, take care of our farmers because they're taking care of us. Yeah. And that's our soapbox for today. <laughs> Um, but really, folks, if you're in the middle of all of this, go to USDA.gov for information from the Risk Management Agency on Prevent Plant due to flooding. Um, call up your, your insurance agents if you haven't already. I'm sure that they are on your speed dials. But get some advice anywhere and wherever you can, and we're going to keep praying for you. Right, Kayleen? Yes. We would like to hear from you about your delayed planning and just what you're considering doing for on your farm. You can drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. And in this week's episode, we're going to bring you the stories you might have missed in the June 3rd print edition. We'll have part one of our interview with Dr. Nancy and Dr. Jerry Jacks, a real-life husband and wife veterinary team that's featured in the National Geographic series The Hot Zone. And we're going to talk with them about Hollywood and their work with U.S. AMRID in the 1980s. We're also going to have an interview from Kayleen. Um, She spoke with Lucas Lynch of Midwest Dairy to kick off Dairy Month in June. Good news. We're going to have Dairy Month in June. That means ice cream all month (laughs) long. Right, Kayleen? Yeah, and and Lucas talked a lot about how their programs are fighting hunger. So there's lots of good products, dairy products that can fight some hunger. Dairy is a good, good product, (laughs) folks. it is. And, of course, Kayleen's going to bring us the latest on grain markets, and we will have some final thoughts. So, maybe take a moment this month to find those World War II vets in your lives, tell them thank you, maybe buy them a cup of coffee, and spend some time listening to their stories. And record them. And record them. Please record them. And as always, thanks for choosing to ride with us on HPJ Talk. This week's cover story was a preview of our upcoming Cattle U July 31st and August 1st. Jenny spoke with confirmed speaker Lorna Marshall, Vice President of Beef Genetics for Select Sires, about how commercial cattlemen can better use EPDs in their breeding programs. Visit www.cattleu.net to register for this first-of-its-kind event. Inside on page 1-2B, to Kayleen brings us coverage of USDA's announcement of trade aid for farmers. This $16 billion package is meant to help farmers who have been damaged by trade disruptions in their markets. On pages 8 to 10b, we have updates from our all-aboard wheat harvest crews from the road. Be sure to keep up with our crews online at allaboardharvest.com, brought to you by John Deere and High Plains Journal. On our Opinions and Editorials page, 4b, Managing Editor Dave Bergmeier writes about Mother Nature's House of Horrors in this flood season. Seymour Clearly writes about Senator John Thune's new stuffed bison head in his office and the commotion it caused coming through the halls of Congress. And copy editor Jennifer Thurer brings us a book review of The Kemptons, Adventures of a Montana Ranch Family, 1880 to 1964. Remember, if you have a response to something you've read or heard, or there's a local topic that you want to bring to the attention of our readers and listeners, please write to us at journal at hpj.com. 
or hbjtalk at hbj.com. Or you can always call us at the office, 1-800-452-7171. We want to hear from you. Well, this morning I am talking with Lucas Lynch from the Midwest Dairy. He's their CEO. How are you doing this morning? Kayleen, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, June is Dairy Month. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what Dairy Month is and some of the things that you guys have going on right now? You bet. Well, across the country, we celebrate National Dairy Month, which is very popularly known as June Dairy Month. And during National Dairy Month, uh, the dairy checkoff from across the country is working very closely uh, with, with dairy farmers at the grassroots level, but also we're really using it as a time to, to showcase the work, the ongoing work that we do on behalf of the dairy community, especially within the food bank system. Because one in five children this summer are going to be and will be that we know are food insecure. Right. My kids are grade school, so they sent home things from school about the summer lunch programs. And I know they really enjoy getting milk when they're at school. So tell me a little bit about the, there was an event this past weekend, June 1st, uh, with the market and the food search there in St. Louis. Did you guys go ahead and do that? Oh, yeah, just a, a tremendously successful event with Deerberg's Markets in Depew, uh, in uh, Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, along with Operation Food Search. Basically, we kicked off the Real Love Convoy for National Dairy Month. We've got a, a literally a vehicle traveling the country and really highlighting not, not only the National Dairy Month, but also the need that exists within our, our society for our children. Because as, as kids get out of school, uh, with one in five of those youth uh, being food insecure and not really knowing where a, a meal in the day will come from, uh, it's a chance for programs uh, like the Real Love Convoy to highlight the work that our food banks and really the, the people that are behind the systems bringing Feeding America to life at a local level and through the food bank system to a local pantry shelf. Well, that sounds really good. Um, there's another program that I was made aware of the milk to my plate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's one of the uh, vehicles. So milk to my plate is a direct purchase program that really provides a supply of fresh milk to food pantries at a consistent and affordable price. Mm-hmm. And just as an example, last year, uh, food banks in our region purchased more than 347,000 pounds of milk that were distributed to families in need. And that really covered... Um, also, the, the need for us to, as Midwest Dairy, we provide uh, grants for the purpose of, a, of refrigeration infrastructure. As you can imagine, if you're going to have uh, dairy products, you should have them refrigerated, and part of that refrigeration is the cold chain, and some of these food pantries didn't necessarily have the equipment uh, for um, holding on to that dairy product. So Milk to My Plate is a tremendous uh, platform for dairy processors to have milk purchased that is ultimately then supplied uh, to the food bank themselves. Well, that sounds pretty good to have those grants available to those that need it. Um, what about the Pints to Gallons campaign? Yeah, actually, the, um, the Pints to Gallons is, a, is an example of how um, schools that are part of our Fuel to Play 60 program uh, work with health and wellness programs across the region. They take an active role in giving back to their community by donating funds to the local food bank, uh, which is then used to purchase milk for families in need. Just a quick example, in Nebraska, it's really pretty cool. There were five schools that raised more than $11,000 for the worthy cause of 
of pints to gallons. Mm-hmm. But uh, back on Milk to My Plate, how we really fund that, you can go to giveagallon.com. We're, uh, we're really promoting uh, the resources for folks if they want to donate to the effort. Giveagallon.com is a great place to, to support the cause. Okay. And I know there's other events that are coming up in June. Can you describe a few of those? You know, we are always uh, just absolutely thrilled to have our dairy farmers engaging at a local level and welcoming today's consumers onto the farm. And I know in my home state of South Dakota, Doug Odie of Oilwood Farms and Greg Mose of Modak Dairy will be hosting their annual open houses and collecting donations at each event to donate to Feeding South Dakota. So with that grassroots engagement, uh, you can see that uh, and, and learn more um, about their programs at Egg United. Com, and there's also some unexpected places where we're bringing dairy farmers. In fact, this coming weekend, we've got the Chicago Bears 100-year celebration. And you might be asking, so what is it that dairy farmers are doing with the NFL and the National Football League? And the reality is, is for the last decade, there's been a, a real collaboration between the United States Department of Agriculture, the National Dairy Council, and the National Football League to really bring the program fuel up to play 60 to life in our, in our uh, schools. And that's where we really help students understand a balanced diet uh, to include that of dairy nutrition, of course, but really maintaining a healthy and active lifestyle. And it's just a great partnership. And so we're going to be having uh, dairy farmers helping put on the centennial and supporting the effort in Chicago. Uh, and as the, as the fans come in for this 100-year celebration, uh, dairy nutrition is actually going to be part of the, the experience as they enjoy the weekend. Well, that's pretty awesome. You can't beat professional football and the Chicago Bears. <laughs> you, know, you know, these athletes are just tremendously uh, proven individuals that mm-hmm. understand exactly how they feel their bodies and, and the benefits that dairy has provided to them. And, and in many cases, they are absolutely some of the best champions on behalf of the dairy farmer that I've had the opportunity to meet. Well, that sounds awesome. Um, where can people go to find more information? You mentioned the giveagallon.com. Is that the, the site they need to go to, or is there other Dairy Month hmm. sites that they can check out? Oh, yeah, we've, we've got lots of assets to talk about. But but if you want to contribute and support the, the food insecure uh, children in our country in the summer, Giveagallon.com is a great place. You can also go to MidwestDairy.com for more information. There's also DairyGood.org, uh, O-R-G. That is our national partner in the dairy promotion work that we do. Midwest Dairy is part of a state and region effort, and we roll up and are part of Dairy Management Incorporated. And that is ultimately where DairyGood.org uh, is a place for our producers and consumers to, to visit and learn more. All right, that sounds good. Um, is there anything else you think we need to know? You know, if you're interested in, in learning more about what's happening in the food insecure, you can join uh, Midwest Dairy's Dairy on the Air podcast. We've got a special uh, edition coming up later this week with Julie Yurko. Uh, Julie is the CEO of the Northern Illinois Food Bank, and we're going to be releasing that on June 6th. And one of the things about that is that we talk specifically about the milk-to-my-plate model mm-hmm. and how that's been replicated throughout the country. And she has a tremendous personal story as well, and, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this particular guest on Dairy on the Air. And you can also go to Invest Dairy and learn more about all of our other podcasts. If, that, if you find that interest of what's 
uh, in consumers' minds, we really try to tailor uh, the episodes to, to talk to today's consumers and learn more about why they think the way they do. Well, I have to go check that out. Well, thanks for talking with me today, Lucas. Great to be with you. It's great to be with you, but most importantly, it's a, it's a real honor to, for all of us that work on behalf of our dairy farmers at large. Uh, they're the true unsung heroes in our country. They get up every day and, and bring dairy to life in their unique way that they do in a sustainable and, and positive way on behalf of the rest of us. Absolutely. Well, thank you, to Lucas. Cable TV might have caught the National Geographic limited series The Hot Zone this month. The movie stars Juliana Margulies as Colonel Nancy Jacks, an Army veterinary pathologist who played a key role in a 1989 situation at a lab facility in Reston, Virginia. Monkeys at a nearby facility back then had tested positive for Ebola, and the situation inspired the 1994 book The Hot Zone, which was then optioned for a movie. Jacks and her husband, Colonel Jerry Jacks, both worked in the U.S. Army Veterinary Corps and were trained at the Kansas State University. We talked to them about their work on infectious diseases, Hollywood, and lab protocols, and even how farmers and ranchers today need to be vigilant to protect their herd from outbreaks. Coming on to HPJ Talk today is Dr. Jerry and Dr. Nancy Jacks. You might know and recognize those names from the National Geographic series, The Hot Zone, which has been on cable TV here recently. Do you like doctor or do you prefer colonel? You can just call us Jerry and Nancy, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Jerry and Nancy, thank you so much for coming on. First off, let's let's tell our listeners about your careers in veterinary medicine and infectious diseases. You both have had quite an interesting career path. So how did this all start? Okay, well, we met uh, in veterinary school, and uh, we got married before my senior year. And so when I graduated, Nancy still had a year to go, and uh, it was during the Vietnam War. They were hiring and I called the uh, Army Veterinary Corps up to see if I could get stationed at Fort Riley, and they accommodated that. And so I spent a year at Fort Riley while Nancy finished uh, uh, finished up at K-State, and then I liked what I was doing, and uh, she was uh, interested in going into the Army, so uh, we negotiated an assignment in, on, in uh, Washington State at Fort Lewis, and so they assigned us out there. We didn't really know at the time that Nancy would be only the second, the third veterinarian, uh, the third female veterinarian in the history of the Army Veterinary Corps. Just to give that some context, there were about 700 veterinarians in the uh, Veterinary Corps at that time. Oh wow! So, so not very many, uh, not very many women. And uh, so we spent two years at Fort Lewis, and then we went uh, overseas to Germany, where. We took care of uh, about 130 guard dogs and did uh, other post-camp and station and clinic-style uh, work while we were there. And when we came back, after three years, we had both our children in Europe. And after we came back, uh, we had some opportunities to uh, go into postgraduate training programs. They, uh, 
uh, and we decided we wanted to go do some postgraduate programs. But the Army has some very uh, uh, high quality programs in uh, veterinary pathology and veterinary laboratory animal medicine. And so we went to USAMRIC, which is the Army's uh, Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases at uh, Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, where we trained uh, in pathology and lab animal medicine. And so that's how we got into the research and development and uh, working with uh, high-hazard uh, infectious disease. So the U.S. Army Veterinary Corps, why is that still critical and, and a key component of what the U.S. Army has? We don't really run cavalry horses anymore, but like you said, we have guard dogs. Are there other things that the U.S. Army Medical Corps or Veterinary Corps handles? Yeah, you know, uh, veterinarians are important for uh, food inspection and subsistence inspection. And, uh, you know, the USDA employs uh, a number, a lot of veterinarians uh, to do that. The Army does its own uh, work in that uh, that, uh, field. Uh, also, there's a lot of public health missions that are associated with the Veterinary Corps. And about, I don't know, about 25% of the veterinarians that were in the Army work in research and development. And the Army has uh, does a lot of uh, research and development for against uh, hazards that soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines face on the battlefield, uh, chemical agents, blasts, infectious disease. So, it, you know, the... Being in the service on the battlefield is a dangerous uh, it is a dangerous place, and so there is a lot of research to try to help protect them. And you know, the connection uh, for veterinarians is if you're worried about anthrax on the battlefield as a as a uh, as a, a bio warfare agent, you don't do human subject research necessarily with anthrax. And so we use a lot of animals in research associated with uh, using human uh, animal models of human disease. Uh, to try to find countermeasures, chemical defense, and uh, biologic agents. Huh, that's really interesting. I, that is kind of cool. um, I grew up just outside of Junction City, so I know Fort Riley, and I know our, our cavalry unit there, and, and that's always what I thought the veterinarians did, but now my eyes are open. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys want to talk a little bit about the Hollywood and infectious diseases, and your jobs make for some fascinating stories, but it's not all... Uh, dramatic music and action sequences. Um, Nancy, can you're involved with the the recent National Geographic series, The Hot Zone, and it tells the story about the Ebola outbreak that was almost in the United States in the 80s, and you were portrayed by Juliana Margulies of ER fame. How did this series come about, and what sort of role did you get to play in production, and what kind of advice did you get to give Juliana on how to play you on screen? Well, it, it was pretty interesting. Um, of course, the miniseries was based on the on the book, The Hot Zone, written by Richard Preston, which actually, uh, initially he wrote an article for Vanity Fair magazine. He came to the Institute, interviewed Jerry, interviewed I, me, and then he wrote a book for The New Yorker, I'm sorry, uh, it was the New Yorker magazine. And then he got so much positive response from that article, it was actually overwhelming. He decided to write a book. And the book was nonfiction, and that was actually Richard's specialty. He had written a number of nonfiction books. And so when the book was written, it immediately became a bestseller. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for almost two years, uh, within, I believe, the top ten 
books, and that included fiction and nonfiction, so extremely popular. Uh, I think Richard had a knack for writing a book that could be appealing to a middle school student, a bright student, but uh, it was very exciting to a PhD and other medical professionals. And so we felt one of the best things that came out of that was that it got so many kids interested in science and medicine. And that was just a huge positive effect. Linda Oates and uh, 20th Century Fox bought the rights to that movie in, I think, 1994, 1993 or 1994, 95. At the time, there was another movie made by a competing studio, and kind of the Ridley Scott were just determined to make this into a viable piece, you know, film piece, and decided that a miniseries, that the subject was really too complex for a movie, and so the idea of a miniseries came along. As far as uh, input that Jerry and I had, I actually, we just listened to an interview, a podcast, or an interview today with Juliana Margulies. She actually was given the first four sections of the script but when she decided that you know she would do it we really had no input as far as uh, script activity or on-site activity uh, at all uh, basically we answered questions about you know how we wore our uniforms what we wore to work she was more interested I think in my character development but we had no input into the script at all I talked to her multiple times in emails but it was mostly kind of about how I approached my job Mm-hmm. That's fascinating because going about creating a character that's a fictional character is one thing, but playing an actual person has to be a whole other ball game for an actress. I can imagine. I'm, I'm sure it is. I think she uh, she she just felt like it was a very strong female role, which she was used to playing. Uh, she had done. You know, she's a Golden Globe actress, uh, an Emmy award-winning actress, and, and she has kind of always been drawn to, uh, drawn to those type of roles. She's very socially conscious about a number of causes, and she just felt it was a really good fit for her, which it was. I think she did a, a really great job. Well, I got to say, having watched the show, if I wasn't already an ag journalist, I think I might sign up to, to try to become a vet. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty... Pretty motivating. Uh, at the time I went, and Jerry mentioned, you know, but at the time I went to vet school, actually my class had the largest group of women that had ever gone through veterinary school at Kansas State. Up till the time Jerry went through, two was kind of the magic number of women, not more than two. My class had eight, uh, and we were all pretty good at what we did, but it, it was out and 80, 80 per class. Mm-hmm. So now, of course, women are the dominant. Uh, there are more women in veterinary medicine than there are men. So, you know, a lot's been kind of made about in in the popular press about the role of women in the military in the 80s and and all of this, women in veterinary medicine. I mean, when I went to college up at K-State, I had three friends that were all female that were going to school, um, at going to the vet school, and it seemed like more and more of the class was more, like you said, more dominantly women. So, what was it like being being a, a trailblazer, so to speak? And I, I know that might sound a little pompous, but you, you really kind of were. 
I, well, I think we didn't really think about that. You know, I just, it was something I always wanted to be. I never remembered wanting to do anything else. Uh, so for me, that was, that was just a super goal. And as Sherry mentioned, he went to the Army first. The thing that was really impressive to me was it was absolutely equal pay. The glass ceiling that women ran into often just didn't apply in the Army. And, and they were actually looking for women that were qualified. Uh, so for me, it was a really good fit. Wow, that's that's really cool. <laughs> and the veterinary corps is not real big as the corps go. As Jerry mentioned, at that time there were about 700 people, and uh, they were always really good to us. They stationed us together. We developed complementary specialties. Uh, lab animal medicine and pathology are very complementary, and it allowed us to be stationed together. And so we were always uh, pretty much exactly on time being able to, to be stationed together. Okay, so Jerry, same question. I mean, Noah Emmerich from The Americans, which I watched him play on that show, and I thought he was kind of phenomenal. Um, But he's playing you in this series. So same question. What, you know, what was it like knowing that there's somebody playing you on the screen? And and did they get it right? And well, I never talked to him until we went you know we were they were kind enough to ask us to participate in their in their advertising and in their promotional stuff we got a chance to go to new york and L, we get got a chance to go to new york three different times and dc and la for promotional events and so i did get a chance to chat with him there but you know i mean the reality is, is that this you know the hot zone was really primarily about Nancy and so you know it's flattering to have somebody play you on screen and uh, I think you know we're about the same size and uh, <laughs> we're, we're told that we're told that Juliana Margulies wanted to make sure that, that somebody who played me was tall because uh, uh, because they'd seen pic- you know they'd seen pictures of us and and had heard talks <laughs> that we had given um that's really it's it's kind of wild to think that you know two kids from kansas are being portrayed on on a screen even if they're small screens Uh, yeah i have one thing i want to add on that Uh too uh you know what one of the things that you know watching them watching them do this you know in 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 movies or dramatic events they you know they want to create tension and they want to uh you know have dramatic effect uh, one of the things that, you know, we didn't, you know, we weren't crazy about was uh, sort of the professional tension that we had mm-hmm. about what Nancy was, you know, about what Nancy was doing. And, you know, that that was just not something that was part of the deal for us. We, you know, one of the nice things about our careers is we have had complementary specialties that we haven't, you know, even though we worked in the same building and on the same projects, we never worked, in, you, know, you know, there was never any competition. Mm-hmm. And as far as what Nancy was doing at uh, USAMRI, uh, we were both completely signed up for that because we were working in a facility that uh, uh, that was our mission. Uh, there was never any question that, you know, there, there was a real concern or a, uh, uh, a competition about where she would be working. And so... I think that piece of it is not something that we're real crazy about, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and overall, we think that the, you know, we think that the film had a very positive uh, role and a very positive message, which is, you know, we have to have scientists and we have to have uh, facilities that do this kind of work. It's, uh, you know, it is anonymous in a lot of ways, and it's really, you know, as you just implied, it's, 
it really is very uh, surprising and would not be predictable that, uh, you know, we'd end up uh, with this kind of notoriety. So uh, I think ultimately it's a good thing. Yeah. So this, this show looks at Ebola Reston. So let's talk a little bit about that virus. You know, why do we continue to research viruses like this? You mentioned that part of it is that we want to, we want to, we want to create defenses against it if it comes onto our shores. But um, I guess what have we learned from since the 1980s to today? Why do we continue to research this sort of thing? Um, why is that a critical component of, of what we are working towards today for a better future? Yeah. I, you know, if you, if you look at Ebola, it, it has just, within the last uh, five years, has killed uh, twelve or 13,000 people. And is, uh, there's a new outbreak that's uh, killing more. And so I think that is, uh, you know, uh, that's really the bottom line for why we are concerned about these, uh, these kind of diseases. They are, uh, we have re-emerging diseases now. You know, when, when we were growing up, you rarely heard the word tuberculosis. Now we're concerned about multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis that is a, is a horrible emerging disease in the developing countries and certainly in uh, Eastern Europe. So we have dengue getting into the United States now. You have West Nile and Lyme disease and uh, flus and all kinds of different diseases. And, you know, the, the population dynamics are making... Uh, infectious disease more and more and more dangerous when you have so many people and you have such tremendous mobility. Those are all recipes for, you know, for outbreaks and for and for very, very significant disease uh, problems. So with many sorts of risks that we have as human populations, the risk has, has reduced based upon uh, our advances in technology. But with infectious disease, with many, many, many more people associated with, uh, you know, how many people live in the world, these risks are increasing all the time, and uh, even old risks are reemerging. So, you know, it's not anything that we can sleep on, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at a lot of these diseases, they are what's known as zoonotic, uh, and that is the exposure pool comes from animals, and it's transmissible to man. So veterinarians have a real uh, solid niche in that arena, but also as far as agricultural efforts go, you have to look at antibiotic resistance. I mean, we're running out of of drugs that work, Mm -hmm. and antibiotic resistance is a huge problem. So uh, add that to the fact that antibiotic use in in animals needs to be watched very closely. That's definitely something that we've seen um, out here in in cattle country, for sure. You know, we're we're really working every day not to, to use antibiotics unless they're directed by a veterinarian and, and pinpoint accuracy kind of thing so that we don't, we don't waste that, that powerful tool. Right, Kayleen? Right. We've kind of talked yeah. a little bit about, you know, Hollywood's version of these infectious diseases and outbreaks and the drama that they kind of put in there. What's it really like in the lab? I mean, day to day, what is it, what goes on? I would say day-to-day is pretty much like any job. It's your, your day is very routine until something very non-routine happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's certainly what happened to us with the finding of Ebola in the uh, uh, facility in Reston, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we expected that it was simian hemorrhagic fever. Dr. Peter Jarling, who was the virologist, 
have been lecturing about it quite frequently. It's a disease that's common in monkeys, but doesn't is not transmissible to humans. So they sent tissues to the lab, and uh, our electron microscopist there was very astute, noticed that something was wrong with the culture, and he actually identified the virus. It's important to understand at that time, the only known species of Ebola virus were deadly pathogens. And but there were things that just weren't making sense. Always the, the disease had emerged in Africa. Ebola had never been reported in non primates. So it was a really um, challenging puzzle to handle. If you add that all up, that they said it, it was a contagious disease and that monkeys were dying, and uh, it's not a very pretty death. Uh, we had to euthanize those animals, and of course, Gary and his team, which was comprised of veterinarians and veterinary technicians had to do all of that, and uh, it was a big job. Yeah, I think when you talk about uh, sort of the Hollywood version of events, you know, the scenes in the monkey house and the sort of tension that was involved in that, there, you know, there's a, there's a real piece of reality associated with that, but uh, one of the things that they, you know, that they didn't make clear was that the people that were responding down to uh, that non-human primate quarantine facility were all specialized, uh, specially trained veterinarians that worked in my group. The technicians were all certified uh, laboratory animal technicians. And so we had a very professional group that went down there. Now, it was an accident that we had all of that horsepower right there within driving distance of Reston. It was about 45 or 50 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did have some things that, you know, I mean, it was dangerous. We did have a monkey get loose, but it never got out of a room. But it was a... Uh, you know, that was a very significant situation for us. We did have a lot of trouble catching monkeys because some of these monkeys didn't have didn't have squeeze cages, so that was a very uh, tedious and time-consuming, and it was uh, high-tension uh, business. You know, they, they certainly did take uh, license associated with uh, what went on down there, but it was, you know, the real story is plenty, uh, uh, is plenty compelling and plenty suspenseful. So, again, I you know, we, we think that, that the, you know, basically the the, the, the series tells the right story. Okay. And it has, I think we were exceptionally pleased that uh, with the concluding, you know, remarks in the film and then the transition into the documentary, which both Jerry and I felt was very well done. Join us next week for part two, where we continue our discussion with Nancy and Jerry about their work and what it's like to have a piece of your life put up on the screen for the world to see. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources on May 28th, corn was up at $4, wheat was up at $4.21, milo was up at $3.50, and soybeans were up at $7.16. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters at our website, hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you, and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Next week's print issue of High Plains Midwest Ag Journal is our rural lifestyle issue with a story by Kayleen. Be sure to watch for that in your mailboxes June 10th and look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com.
Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. This has been a production of High Plains Journal, all rights reserved. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights.